this morning as we continue our journey along with Dr. Luke and we pick up our 13th installment here of our Savior's Saga, I want to remind you that not much has changed in the last couple thousand years and that faith is still criticized, amen? Uh, it, I, I run into it constantly. People have very, very little problem uh, if you rely on reason or intelligence or uh, popularity or political correctness or the mores of the day, but the moment that you say that you believe by faith and that you have a, a life that is governed by something that is not necessarily only reason, and I want to be very clear here, I'm not making a case that you shouldn't use your minds and that you shouldn't use all that God's given you that's reasonable and and that you uh, need to just put your head on a shelf when you become a Christian. That's not true at all. But a lot of what we do as the body of Christ is virtually impossible without the element of faith, and I believe God has made it so. And so as we continue, we'll pick up in chapter 5 and verse 27, And the criticism of the Lord is going to continue. We saw it begin last week. We're going to see it continue this week. And you're going to see three basic things. And they almost always come from religion. And again, in in the definition that I would like for you to hold in view, I'm not talking about religion as in necessarily just simply the organized church, because we're part of the organized church, but I'm talking about man's attempt to reach God, that type of religion. In other words, when someone says that this is my religion, uh, we call it in our modern day and time a belief system, and typically that belief system uh, has an object to which the person worships. And in this case, we're talking about religion that is not believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the religious of that day, the very religious, as I shared with you last time, were the Jews. Uh, They were monotheistic. They were the only group of people on the earth who worshipped the one true and the living God. And yet they were lost. They remain lost to this day in Judaism. And because of that, they came to each of these events with Jesus. You remember we met in a divine meeting last time as the religious rulers of the day came to see Jesus and what was going on. They were doctors. They were lawyers. They were very learned people. They were the religious elite of the day. And I can tell you that that still exists today, that the part of the biggest problem in the church is the religious elite. It's people who have spent their life, they have endeavored to know all that they can. They've engaged in the study of the science of theology, knowing God. And yet they're more lost than the poor guy who's basically just gotten saved, if he's saved at all, but has had almost no church. And so you're going to see religious prejudices, religious practices, and religious pretenses in our passage this morning. And so would you pray with me? Father, we thank you 
for this time in your word this morning. And we pray as we study that you would instruct us from heaven, that we would receive and, Lord, be encouraged in our faith, built up. Help us to have a right understanding of what we are facing as we walk in this world. Lord, help us to not be blindsided by the persecution, by the criticisms. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Pray that you'd speak to us now through it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And after these things, and so he's just linking all of this together. Remember, as I shared with you and showed you in those photos, these were all day's walks. They were a few hundred yards. You could walk down from Capernaum uh, down to the coast there at Tagtha and uh, all of these things happened in a very, very dis- short distance one from another. And after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. At that day and time, virtually every major city was also a place of collection of taxes. It's how Rome basically paid for its army and for the things that Rome did. Under the Pax Romana, people benefited from the Roman system of taxation. It was quite heavy-handed at times, but in each area, each region, if there were a crossroads, there would be a tax collector there. And so if you brought your caravan, the tax collector would come out and he would take part of your proceeds and that would allow you to pass on that Roman road. If you lived in an area that was served by the Roman aqueduct system, you were taxed so that you would have fresh water. So there were legitimate reasons for the taxation. The problem was that almost all of the tax collectors were Jews, and they were viewed as serving the Romans. And so they were traitors. They were cast out of the Jewish religion. They were not allowed to attend synagogue. They were outcasts. And so Levi is among these men. Notice how it continues. And so he left all and rose up and followed him. What did Jesus say? Did he give him a long sermon? Did, did he you know, give him any indication that he would be great? Did he promise him wealth and prosperity? Did he say to him, you know, Levi, if you just follow me, man, I, you're going to be writing books here really soon, and you are going to be so well known? Levi, if you just come after me, the whole world will worship you just like they'll worship me. We'll start a cult together. No, he just simply says to him two simple words, follow me. Now, it's actually the basic definition of a disciple, a follower. One under the tutelage of someone else. And so he says, follow me. And so he left all and rose up and followed him. This was a lucrative position. The tax collectors got a cut. Basically, they worked on a percentage. They were kind of piecework guys. And as they collected taxes for Rome, they got a cut of whatever they collected. So if you collected a lot of taxes, you see, it was in your best benefit to be a good tax collector. The more you weaseled out of people, the more you yourself got. And so when it says he left all, he was turning down a pretty lucrative position. And then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And this is where the story begins to get very interesting. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others. Would you circle that word others? Because it's very important to the story. It's the Greek word alos. The Greek word alos means others of the same kind. You see, you can have others of a different kind. You you could have just other people. 
But the word that he uses here is others of the same kind. In other words, he had an IRS convention at his house. And he got all of the tax collectors that he could think of in the region to come to his house. This would be like the most horrible group of people to gather together in your home that you could possibly imagine if you were going to talk to a bunch of Pharisees and religious rulers of the Jewish faith. This was like you were getting the worst of the worst of the worst together. And so he says further now, and their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying. So the disciples are in this too. See, here's the story. Matthew follows Jesus. Matthew sends out a message to his friends who are all agents of the IRS. They're now meeting in, in Matthew, Levi's home. And here come the, the same group of guys, the Pharisees, the legalists of the day. And I guarantee you they were coming predisposed to what they were going to believe of the situation. He says, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Can you hear the snideness of it? The pointed contention. We would never be caught dead eating with these folks. If I croaked, I wouldn't want my body left in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Isn't that beautiful? You ever thought about yourself in regard to how Jesus dealt with all these varying people groups and the gospel accounts? Amen. I was sick. I was dead. I needed a physician bad. It's not well people that need to be seeing a doctor. Amen. One of the reasons our medical care is as high as it is. We got a lot of well people seeing doctors. I got a cold. I got a sniffle. Because we don't like to have any kind of pain, right? You got to go in. You got to get antibiotics. That's why also we have so many drug-resistant diseases today. We take so many cures that we don't need that we have well people seeing physicians. And so Jesus uses that case here. But those who are sick... He says, I've come to. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. And so the first thing that we see here is the depth of their religious prejudice. And as he looks at at this group of people, the Lord's enemies didn't have to wait very long to begin to criticize. Amen? And remember back, all he's been doing is healing people and making sure they were well. The problem is he's going to be doing these things on a very specific day. And you all know it is the Sabbath, and we'll get there in a moment. You see, their belief was that they were right. And so they are completely prejudiced towards anything or anyone else that might indicate, hey, maybe there's an issue here. Maybe there's a problem. They believed that basically tax collectors couldn't be saved. That it was pointless to even talk to them. That they were so sold out to Rome 
Uh, these people were ridiculed. They were full of graft and extortion and fraud. They were excommunicated from Jewish religious life and Jewish social life. And so when Jesus says he saw Levi, why don't you understand what the language actually says there? That word saw is theomai. It is a Greek word that means he looked intently like you would look intently at a movie or a television or we get our word, English word, theater from it. He was watching with bated breath about Levi, waiting for the story to unfold, waiting for the plot to thicken, if you will. And so as Levi, the publican, looks up from his desk, Jesus has been staring at him. He's like, I'll I'll get this guy. It was intentional. He was going to deal with their prejudices. You see, because they believed the Jewish religious leadership, but there was no point. Why even talk to him? It's useless. This guy's gone. He's lost. We still have our religious prejudices today, don't we? I don't know about you, but I've thought, no, that guy can't be saved. I've looked at people, and I can tell you, even as a pastor, it's like, well, you know, he just he's a crackhead. That's why he's like that. If you guys are honest, you think the same thing. I've had people come to me, well, you know, they're covered with tattoos. They can't be saved. You know, they were, they were in this sin or that sin, and they'll name the sin. You know, wow, he was in a gang, you know. He owns a Harley. He can't be saved. <laughs> has long hair. Has no hair. Religious prejudices are alive and well. Amen? Can I tell you, it all comes from the same source. Legalism. And it's a dearth to the church. When we sit around and make up our own little cliques and clubs, by default you're excluding people from the body of Christ. Even if you don't intentionally mean that, you'll begin to exclude people from the body of Christ. You may miss a Matthew. You might notice he wrote a pretty nice gospel, amen? So he absolutely was able not only to be saved, but to be used. And yet his beginning didn't look too great. And Jesus simply says, follow me. You see, Jesus was a nonconformist. And he absolutely was not politically correct. He was the opposite of politically correct. It's almost as if he intentionally said things to kind of twist people a little bit and get them thinking. And you're going to see that as this passage unfolds before us. You see, the scribes, the the Pharisees, were already kind of nervous. And when he calls this group of people who are ostracized by Jewish society, they're going, see, told you. He's a rabble-rouser. He's here to destroy Judaism. And so he says to them, people who are sick don't need a doctor. He dealt with their prejudice right then, right there. Pick up now in verse 33 as we see how he ignores completely their religious practices. 
And then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Again, you hear what they're saying in in how they're phrasing this? You see, John the Baptist lived an ascetic lifestyle. The dude ran around in a camel hair garment and ate wild locusts and honey. He ate grasshoppers, okay? Not a good thing you go to a, you know, some social function. Hey, you got a grasshopper leg hanging out of your tooth there. Could you kind of get rid of that? It's a little disgusting. He, he lived that ascetic lifestyle. He was like a monk, a hermit to some degree. And so the Pharisees kind of liked John the Baptist. And so as they looked at him, you know, but yours, I mean, they eat and drink. Notice what he says. And watch how Jesus uses their own mindset against them. Because their religious practices were this. Well, we'll just look holy. Do you remember some of the other things Jesus said about them? As they come in their flowing robes, he says, yeah, you guys look great. You're like whitewashed sepulchers on the outside. You're awesome, but inside you're dead. Jesus was constantly reminding them, I'm looking at your heart. I don't care how much fasting you do. I don't care how much sackcloth you wear. I don't care how big your Bible is. Don't care how many bumper stickers you got on your car. Don't care if you go to the biggest church or the smallest church. Your religious practices don't matter to Jesus. And they still don't. And frankly, again, it points to the root issue, which is legalism. you got to do it like this. It has to look like this. If it doesn't look like this, it can't possibly be right. And so he says, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He just simply goes to logic and reason with them so that they'll think about what they're saying. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. And so he's going to attack their practices. He says, you guys are all about making it look good on the outside. But it's your hearts that are wrong. And so he gives them two examples of how their practices are messed up. He takes them to the workshop. He takes them to the wine shop. Just two simple analogies for them. And then he spoke to them in a parable. For no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, it makes a new tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. You get the picture here? He's saying if you're doing a new work... For those of you that have you know, some capacity to understand uh, this analogy, some of you women probably more so than some of you men, some of us guys, you know, we've been around a few sewing machines in our day. If you do not pre-wash fabric and you take a brand new piece of fabric and you cut it out and you sew it onto an old garment without pre-shrinking it, you know what it does? It looks terrible. The stitching will pull out because it begins to shrink and contract. You can't do it that way. It won't have the desired effect. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm talking about you guys, okay? You have your religious prejudices, you have your religious practices, and here's what you've begun to do. 
I'm trying to do a new work, but I can't do a new work on an old garment. And so he says to them, he goes on and gives them yet one more, and we'll take these apart a little bit here. And likewise, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskin and it will be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins so that both are preserved. And no one having drunk the old wine immediately desires the new, for the old is better. And so he begins to say to them, look, guys, my disciples are like this because they've been set free. You guys are like you are because you're still in bondage. You still want to be under the law. My disciples are under grace. Those two things are mutually exclusive at times in the application. Christ came to fulfill the law, but he didn't come by giving more law. He said, here's what we're going to do. This is a new thing, a new covenant I give you. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus said? In my own blood. You see, he was going to do away with the old religious system. It was going to be gone. And so Jesus now takes a little bit of the offensive. He he didn't come to patch up Judaism. He didn't come to make Judaism better. He didn't come, in essence, to complete Judaism. He came to do away with Judaism. It was no longer going to be the method whereby man could be right with God. It's going to be by grace you would be saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Amen? That's what he came to do. He didn't come to patch up Judaism. Judaism was an old garment, and Jesus was a new patch. You put those two things together, it tears them both apart. You can't be grace-filled and legalistic and law-filled at the same time. You just can't. It'll diminish both. Worn, faded, threadbare Judaism that was loved by the rabbis was about to become exempt from going forward. The Lord died so that we wouldn't have to go through that. And then he takes him to the wine shop. And I love this. Look what he says. He says, no man. You're not going to put it in the the new wine. Why? Because the old wineskins had already stretched as far as they could go. Here's the picture. The old wineskins had already stretched as far as they could go. They could not stretch any further. Typically, when you had a wineskin, you would put new wine into it first. It would then ferment, stretch out as far as it could go, and then it would be used only from that point on for old wine. You would never put new wine in it. Because if you did, you could fill it up prior to fermentation with new wine, and then it would expand some more, it would burst, blow up, and you'd lose it all. That's the picture between the grace of God that came through Christ Jesus and the law of God that came through Moses. It was the difference between old dead Judaism and the new covenant of grace. He says, look, you're worried about my disciples out here and how much they eat or drink. That's not the problem. 
The problem is, is that you're not hearing about the new covenant. They couldn't be reformed. And so he says, you know, sure, you're going to like... The, you see, the old wine tasted better. Get this picture. The old wine tasted better. People are very comfortable in their traditions. I know people that have gone to the same service for 20 straight years because it's tradition. They're not looking for God to do anything new in their life. They just want to be told that old is okay. And I'm not trying to do away with everything that's old and traditional. I happen to like some traditions, and I'm sure you do too. But when you start clinging to religious traditions... Pretty soon you think you don't have any room to grow. And that's what he's telling them. You guys need to grow. We need a new wineskin. We need new wine because you need to grow. They didn't want that. They wanted to attend the banquet. And as soon as the old wine was gone, they were gone. He says, stick around. The new wine may kind of taste different, but trust me, it's going to be better. And finally, he ignored their pretenses. So their prejudices, their practices, and finally their pretenses as we pick up now in chapter 6. And now it happened on the second Sabbath. Remember, he's already done one miracle on a Sabbath. This is the second one. I love this. Because this is exactly what they needed to hear. Because their problem was their pretenses. They believed that no matter what anyone did, as long as they kept the Sabbath, they were good. That thought process is still alive in Judaism today. And I'll share with you in a moment on that regard. And now it happened on a second Sabbath that after the first that when he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands, and some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now think about this for a moment. Can you think of any story in Scripture where, you know, maybe some famous king whose name begins with a D did a few things that kind of weren't exactly right in the eyes of the Jewish Religious leadership like David. You, you remember when he was being chased by Saul? Where did he end up? He ended up in the temple. He actually asked the priest, hey, go get some of the showbread. We're going to scarf that down. Notice what he says. Some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered and said to them, have you ever bothered to read your Bible? No, he didn't actually say that because he didn't have Bibles. But there were certainly plenty of scrolls of the Old Testament and certainly the beloved kings and the patriarchs. Amen? If you didn't know much, it's kind of like us. You talk to any of our kids in this church who have been here for a while. They know about David. They know about Goliath. They know about Jonah. They know about all of the Old Testament heroes, Solomon and so on. Same was true then. And he says, have you not even read this? But David, when he was hungry, and those who were with him, he went into the house of God and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. You get the picture? He's saying, you guys revere David. David's almost a god to you. 
So much so that David has his own tomb in Jerusalem to this day. And David went in and ate the showbread. The representation of the twelve tribes. You, you see, God didn't really care about the bread. He cared about the people. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, Your beloved Sabbath, that worship that you have, and when you go to Jerusalem today, what a shocker. It is, you, you drive through Mia Sharim on, from Friday evening to Saturday morning, and your head's not covered, they will stone your car. They will throw rocks at you. You get on an elevator anywhere in Israel. From Sabbath to the close of Sabbath on Saturday, and it stops, it says right there, Shabbat elevator. It stops on every floor. Because you can't work. Pushing the buttons work. Old wineskin. Jesus said, it's not why I'm here. Pharisees say, hey, dude, you're breaking the Sabbath. Jesus said, I am the Sabbath. Your Sabbath is done. And I want for just a moment to explain to you, because we have a lot of folks here in Running Springs, we have a lot of folks in this area, if you're familiar at all with Loma Linda University Medical Center, it's a Seventh-day Adventist hospital. And they believe that if you don't keep the Sabbath, you are not a Christian. You've got to worship on Saturday. problem is, your Bible completely disagrees. Jesus completely disagrees. And in fact, after Jesus arose, you never find the church meeting together anywhere in Scripture except on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. But more importantly, what, what Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 14 is, I kind of take every day alike, and whatever day you want to worship on, worship on it. But I want to give you a little vision. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2 goes on to say, the Sabbath is not mentioned to Adam and Eve at all. So if the Sabbath was so important, you would think that God would have mentioned it to Adam and Eve. Furthermore, for the next 50 chapters of the book of Genesis... The Sabbath is never mentioned at all, period. By the time you get to the book of Genesis and the installation of the Sabbath rules, you need to understand what it actually says. Chapter 31, if you want to turn there to the book of Exodus, you can. We'll pick up in verse 12. He gives it to them in chapter 16. He goes on and gives the commandments and the ordinances, and then he says this. Verse 12, Exodus 31. The Sabbath is a covenant sign between God and the nation Israel. And he proves it by saying this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel. If you are not a son of Israel, make sure that you hear what goes on next if you're worried about Sabbath keeping. Saying, Surely you shall observe my Sabbath 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then he ties it in with creation. Notice what he says. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath. Who? The sons of Israel. Did it ever strike you that in the entire New Testament, Sabbath keeping is never mentioned once by anybody, including Jesus? And in fact, Jesus broke the Sabbath almost routinely. As if he was saying, that's for the Jewish people. And therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it's holy to you. And everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. It was serious business for the Jews. If you're not a Jew, it's not serious business anymore. Why? For in six days work may be done, but on the seventh there is a Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to the Lord, and whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. And so, notice this, the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath. And so he makes it very clear. It's a part of the covenant. And the problem that people have with Sabbath keeping, especially Seventh-day Adventism, is they believe that you and I are still under the law because they believe in basic replacement theology that the church has replaced the Jews, that God is done with them, and the Jews no longer matter. They're insignificant in the world, in God's design for the world, and that if you're not a person who is under the blood of Christ, that you are just a nobody. You're unsaved like everyone else. The problem is, one-third of your Bible talks about the future history of Israel. Kind of dumb for God to put a third of your entire Bible into the category of prophetic future, which we're studying, by the way, on Wednesday nights in the book of Joel, if you came to care to join us. He's talking about Sabbath keeping here, and Jesus said, I am the Sabbath. And then he never encourages anybody to keep the Sabbath, but he himself breaks the Sabbath. And so, don't get caught up in the law. It is... Religious practices. It is religious prejudices. It is religious pretenses. And so the Lord just simply says, guys, you need to get this right. You're worried about what constitutes work. You realize that by the time Jesus speaks these words, a Sabbath day's journey was considered to be about a thousand yards. And you had to go to a rabbi and pay him money to allow you to travel more than a thousand yards. That the weight of a burden was considered to be two dried figs, according to Gamaliel. Two dried figs. You ever seen a prune? About that size. You got two dried figs, and if the sun is setting on the Sabbath and you're overtaken by the shadow, if you've got three dried figs, you've got to drop one. It's like, oh no! The hand that's filled with fruit would then be unclean. And Jesus is saying, man, I'm not concerned with figs. I really don't care about the figs, okay? I care about the, the people. And so he finishes this, and we can do this rather quickly. Now you understand why he uses the example next of the man with the withered hand. 
He said, what did David do? He said, oh, he went and ate the showbread. I'm telling you, the Sabbath no longer is important to us. He says to them, and now it happened on another Sabbath. You get the picture? He's on one Sabbath. He now goes to another Sabbath. He says, I just want you to get it clear. And he entered the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And so the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath. You see the prejudices, you see the practices, you see the pretenses. They're actually fought. We'll catch him. We're going to get him this time. He's going to really do something bad on the Sabbath. And so what does he do? That they might find an accusation against him, but he knew their thoughts. And said to the man who had a withered hand, he says, Jesus walks over, he says, Arise, stand up, stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you just one little question. One thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? Do you see how quickly he reasoned with them in how silly what their pretenses were? You're sitting here worried about the fact that it's a Sabbath, and you're going to let this guy right here, right in front of you, you're going to let him walk out of here unhealed. You're going to let the lame go lame, the blind go blind. You're going to let people who are hungry starve. You guys have it all wrong. You're so worried about what day of the week it is that you're willing to trample over the guy who has need. That's what legalism does. It tramples over the person who needs grace. It tramples over the person who needs mercy. And so Jesus simply says to him, in this most beautiful thing, when he looked around at all of them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. It was as whole as the other. Notice the response. You want to see how deep legalism goes? You want to see how deep prejudice goes? You want to see how deep practice of religious duties go? You want to see how deep religious pretenses go? They were filled with rage. It actually says they were incensed to the point of insanity. They were ready to kill Jesus right here, right now. Think back on just the things we've already seen. What has he done? He's healed. He's fed. He's taken care of people. He's ministered to the needs of anybody who would come. He would heal the blind. He would make the blind see and the lame walk. Woo, that's terrible. It's kind of like right now, the, the, the typhoon victims. Well, it's, it's Sunday. It's Sabbath. Hope you guys are okay for 24 hours. Because, man, we ain't doing nothing. Hope you guys are okay. It's what religion does. It's what legalism does. It sucks the life out of people. We need to be careful. Jesus was careful to be unconventional. And I want to make sure that we stay that way. 
being careful to be a bit unconventional is a good thing because it keeps us from those prejudices and those practices and those pretenses. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we pray that we'd never take up this foolish banner of just simply doing things because we've always done them that way. Lord, that communion would have to look this way or that way or be woven into some fabric of some liturgy. God, we're not condemning those who practice that. But, Father, we want to be able to be freshly touched and moved and used and God, gotten out of our comfort zones. And Lord, help us to never become religious. Lord, help us to lay down our, our pretenses, our practices, our prejudices, the things that would bind us and keep us, Lord, like old wine. Lord, we want to be new. God, help us to be a new garment, a garment of praise. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.